0: Welcome to the SciFeed guest show. I'm your host, Jack, and in each episode, I'll be talking to a real scientist about the work they've been doing and the topics they know best. For today's episode, I'd like to welcome to the show, Kiani Jacob. Kiani's a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh studying biochemistry, and in particular is focused on Parkinson's disease. So welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on to do an episode today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Now let's begin with a bit about your background and how you decided to study Parkinson's disease.
1: Okay, so um, I studied biochemistry for my undergraduate degree, and then I also did a master's in Alzheimer's disease, actually, and then obviously my PhD. is in Parkinson. So I've been in the field of neurodegeneration for a few years now. Um, I really enjoy being in this field, probably mostly because I enjoy studying the brain. Um, I think as a scientist, it's one of the most interesting scientific problems, it's the most complex organ in the body, Um, so it presents so many challenges and I find that really interesting. Also from a disease perspective, I think there's a real unmet need in neurodegenerative diseases and they're actually really common, so for me it's nice to be able to get into a field where I feel like it can help as many people as possible, also studying some really interesting and cool science.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Before we go into much more detail, could you explain a bit about what Parkinson's disease is and what causes it?
1: Definitely. So Parkinson's is, it's actually the second most common neurodegenerative disorder. And I'm sure most people are probably familiar with some of the symptoms of Parkinson's. So it's characterised by these motor symptoms, such as resting tremor and rigidity, postural instability, um, so people find it difficult to stand upright, and also difficulty walking. So most people are probably familiar with those symptoms. The reason that people get those symptoms is because brain cells, and we call these neurons, in a particular area of the brain die. And these neurons are the ones that release the neurotransmitted dopamine. And dopamine is really important in the brain and it controls a whole host of motor functions. So this lack of dopamine in the brain is what leads to these patients, unfortunately, having these symptoms. But what actually is one of the big questions and kind of what my research and a lot of people's research is, is to what causes these cells to die in the first place. We know they die, but we don't know what causes this.
0: And do you know at all why it happens in some people and not others? Is it? running in families or is there something else happening?
1: So that's a really good question. Um, About 5 to 10% of Parkinson's cases are familial. Um, So they are associated with genetic mutations. And obviously these can be traced in families. And these cases of Parkinson's tend to be earlier onset. So we call a disease early onset if it's before the age of 50. Right. Anything after that, and it's just kind of your regular onset Parkinson's. But obviously that that accounts for a small amount of the cases. Most of these cases aren't linked to genetic mutations and the cause is is fairly random. So we call these sporadic cases.
0: So in 95%, it's just a mystery of why they get it and others don't.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And is there just one type of Parkinson's disease or are there different... Forms or different ways it can appear.
1: So yeah, it's a really interesting question. There are actually a host of syndromes that cause very similar symptoms, and these are called Parkinson's plus syndromes. But they're not actually caused by the same thing. Like the underlying cause is different. Um, so from a diagnostic perspective, this is actually really difficult because people can present with really similar symptoms, but they can actually have really different diseases. Um, In terms of Parkinson's disease itself, that is just one disease. There is kind of one main protein that's linked to it. And this is the one where there can be genetic mutations. And it sort of manifests in the same way people do tend to get the same symptoms.
0: So it's all about kind of a protein misbehaving or doing the wrong thing now?
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: And at the moment, how does a doctor or clinician actually tell if you've got Parkinson's?
1: So at the moment, Parkinson's is mostly diagnosed actually based on symptoms. That is how clinicians determine disease. There are some imaging techniques that can be useful. So MRIs can be useful in helping to diagnose Parkinson's, but obviously this isn't always available to most people. So it is actually just mostly done based on symptoms. And the most important part about this is that by the time someone presents with symptoms, they might have already lost quite a few of their brain cells already. So what we really want to do as a research community is try and identify a better way of being able to diagnose this disease earlier, hopefully, and then we'd be able to get treatment to these patients sooner.
0: So in an ideal situation, you'd catch it before there's any damage that's happened already?
1: That would be great, yeah.
0: What's the work that you personally are doing right now within Parkinson's research?
1: The, so this protein that I briefly mentioned that's involved in Parkinson's is called alpha-synuclein. Um, so we know that this protein causes Parkinson's in that it aggregates in disease and forms what we call Lewy bodies, which some people might have heard of. And these are inclusions in the cells that you can see, unfortunately, post-mortem, and they help diagnose disease. And these are formed of this protein called alpha synuclein. So we know that it's present in these cells and it's the presence that causes these cells to die. But we don't know what causes it to misbehave because it does have a function normally, it's present in all brain cells, it's important. Um, So we don't know what causes it to go wrong, but unfortunately in some people it does. So what I study is I'm trying to look at some of the things that might affect how it behaves and how it functions and why it might go from a normal happy functioning protein to a protein that starts to misbehave and cause disease. Um, So it can be modified in lots of different ways and we call these post-translational modifications. And these are just little tags that you can add to a protein and it affects its behavior.
0: And when you're saying, sorry, post-translational, do you mean, um, what does that mean exactly?
1: So when a protein is made in the cell, we call this process translation. That's just the process by which all proteins are made. And so post-translational, these modifications, these tags get added after the protein's been produced and then that can affect all aspects of how the protein behaves. And these little tags might be some of the reasons that cause the protein to misbehave, because they can change its function, they can change its shape, and we don't really understand what they do. So we think some of them might be linked to disease. So I'm kind of looking into these various different modifications and how they might influence the behaviour of alpha-synuclein.
0: Is your own research focused more on how the disease works, or are you trying to personally look for new tests or new cures or medical applications that you can translate it into?
1: So my research is very fundamental. Um, So we are focused on trying to understand the basic science that underlies the disease. But obviously, all basic biology research and disease research does have an outward look to being translational. So from a diagnostic perspective, what we would like to find out is whether, well, which forms of alpha-synuclein are particularly toxic? Like, is there a particular type of synuclein that is the one that's bad and if so then further down the line could this be used as a biomarker for parkinson's disease
0: so testing for a biomarker is that like doing a home pregnancy test but for parkinson's
1: exactly so a biomarker would be something um so a protein or maybe a a gene marker that would be readily accessible in a biofluid so in urine or in blood or in cerebrospinal fluid that we could use to accurately determine and diagnose a disease. So at the moment, like I mentioned, Parkinson's presents with similar symptoms to other conditions. Whereas if we had um, a blood test, for example, it would be a minimally invasive procedure. We could detect a level of a protein and say, you would definitely have Parkinson's. And hopefully that we could do this earlier before someone actually presented with symptoms and was unfortunately in a later stage of disease.
0: And would that sort of blood test be looking for something like alpha-synuclein or another protein?
1: Yeah. So, so we're looking for particular types of alpha-synuclein in its various modified states. So it might be one of these modified states that would be the perfect biomarker. And that we could then say, if you have this in your blood or in your cerebrospinal fluid, um, you either have Parkinson's or are at a higher risk of developing Parkinson's because we now know that this is particularly toxic.
0: So what does that protein normally do then, the alpha-synuclein, is that right?
1: Yeah, alpha-synuclein, that's a really good question. It's not 100% determined yet, um, but we know that it is important in helping brain cells, neurons to release other neurotransmitters. Um, so it's involved in binding to the membranes of the cells and helping them to release neurotransmitters. But we don't know exactly which ones are exactly how it functions to do that. But we know that it's involved in that process.
0: So is the disease caused by the alpha-synuclein not being able to do its normal job as well as the sort of aggregation that you were saying about?
1: One of its important functions is binding these cell membranes, yeah. So when you get alpha-synuclein that starts to misbehave, essentially that function can be impaired. So it might not be able to bind a membrane as efficiently or it might bind something that it's not supposed to bind. And yes, so those effects can then lead to cell death. And then it's obviously then the cell death which leads to the symptoms.
0: And if you could catch the disease early, would it be possible to completely cure it, or I guess even treat it to the point where it has no effect on a person's life?
1: At the moment, um, obviously early diagnosis is, only as useful if you have a treatment that you can then give to someone earlier. And unfortunately, uh, the treatments for Parkinson's also aren't as good as they could be at the moment. There aren't any cures. It's not a curable disease. And the treatments at the moment focus on um, just alleviating symptoms. So there's no way of halting disease progression or slowing down disease progression. And it is a progressive disease. So unfortunately, we don't really know. Um, because we've never been able to give these treatments at an earlier stage because we've never had a way of diagnosing it sooner. So ultimately, we're not sure. It would be great if you know we had an early diagnosis and then the treatments that we already had showed a significant increase in effectiveness earlier on, but we won't know until we try that. But it's always a case of developing good treatments alongside the diagnostic process because you might have a really good treatment, but if you can only give it to your patient, when they're already extremely advanced, it might not be as effective as it could be. So both things need to be developed at the same time.
0: But I guess there's people who are already working on that and all different aspects of the disease anyway.
1: Absolutely. The Parkinson's research field is huge. And there is people working on you know various aspects of understanding. But from obviously my scientific perspective and a lot of kind of the fundamental biologists, you really need to understand the science that goes on underlying the disease mechanism. And it's kind of this research that underpins then the development of really good therapeutics and then the development of really good diagnostic tools. Unfortunately, this is why a lot of drugs fail in trials. And people might have seen as a few years ago, a lot of Alzheimer's drugs are failing because we just really don't understand what's going on. So unfortunately, we can't can't help until we really know what's going on.
0: So day to day when you're actually in the lab, or I guess not right now, because we're right in the middle of a pandemic. But in normal times, what sort of experiments and techniques can you use to figure out all these things about Parkinson's?
1: Um, so I use a technique called mass spectrometry, which is something that I'm not going to explain um, <laughs> just for the purposes of the podcast. Um, it's like an analytical chemistry technique. And it's really useful for us for identifying various different aspects actually we use it to identify forms different types of the proteins So when we're looking for these different tags and we can also use it to look at the structure um, so the structure of a protein is really really important for how it functions what i do as kind of a basic biochemist is i make the protein um, so i work with e coli cells and we use these to make human proteins for us and then we can study those proteins And we study them and look at their structure and see how their structure is different. And then we can look at how quickly they can misfold and aggregate into kind of these toxic forms. And then later down the line, we can do kind of experiments where we put those proteins into um, mammalian cells and we can see the toxic effects and we can do imaging and lots of different techniques like that. So it's kind of a combination of of everything um, from a biophysics, biochemistry perspective.
0: So you can actually just make all the proteins in the lab. You don't need to, like, extract them from a patient.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something that um, a lot of biochemists do. So we work on um, what's called recombinant protein. So it's when we get bacteria cells to make human proteins for us. Um, Bacteria cells are really great. They make loads and loads of protein and we can really easily control them and grow them. So we use E. coli, yeah, to make loads and loads of protein and then I can study that. Obviously, it's much easier than having to extract proteins from patients or from humans. Um, We can just make what we need in the lab and then do all the experiments on that protein.
0: Going back to what you were saying earlier about working on Alzheimer's research, do you use kind of the same techniques or are the diseases even very similar?
1: Yeah, so obviously Alzheimer's is the leading cause of dementia. And that is caused, there's a couple of proteins involved in Alzheimer's disease. There's amyloid beta and tau. They are very different diseases in that the proteins involved in them are different. But there actually are some similarities. The Lewy bodies, I very briefly mentioned earlier, where you get these kind of aggregates of protein and you actually can see these kind of like black spots in cells, which is aggregates of protein. You get the same thing in Alzheimer's patients. It's just that they're made of a different protein this is something that's common between these two neurodegenerative disorders is you get these proteins that have a a normal function and then at some point they will misfold and they change shape and then they start to misbehave and they stick together and they form these clumps and inclusions inside cells. So even though the two diseases have different symptoms and they have technically different causes, there is actually similarities between them.
0: Yeah. And could you explain why parkinson's and alzheimer's tend to occur in the elderly and they don't seem to happen in younger people or children
1: yeah so your body is very good at dealing with things when things go wrong so there is some evidence to suggest that actually this kind of this misfolding and aggregation process that we think of as being so toxic and so unnatural there's evidence to suggest that this is happening all the time anyway and it's just something that happens throughout your life but when things go wrong your body can usually deal with that and it can destroy those bad proteins and it can clear them away but as you get older these clearance systems they deteriorate obviously they've been working by that point for 60 70 years maybe and they might just their repair mechanisms might not be as good so then you start to build up these proteins. So they're usually aggregating anyway, but we can just deal with them, we can clear them away. But all of a sudden, we can't do that anymore. And then they start to build up.
0: So I'd read that Parkinson's and Alzheimer's was becoming more common. But is that just media reporting that? Or is it actually that people are just living longer, so there's more of a chance for it to develop?
1: Um, Probably a bit of both, I'd say definitely. It is primarily an aging disease. Yeah, so, you know, the main risk factor is age. The older you are, the more likely you are to suffer from these conditions. So, yeah, it is potentially because we obviously have an increasing aging population and people are living long enough to then see the effects of these kind of things. Whereas, yeah, maybe before we weren't. I also do think there is obviously more media presence and obviously with more people getting cases and then people understanding more about it and then the research kind of being done on it maybe we're just becoming more aware as well.
0: And are there any other misconceptions about Parkinson's or about the work that you do even that are quite common?
1: Oh yeah. So probably the most interesting misconception, and I have to admit it's something that I also didn't really know until I started studying the disease, really is people think that Parkinson's is is just this disease of shaking. And these are the only symptoms. Um, obviously that's what we've all seen or heard about, and especially with the with people suffering from it, famous people who suffer from it. But actually, a lot of the symptoms aren't these motor symptoms. so dopamine in the brain um, is connected to a lot of different pathways and helps control a lot of different functions. So some of the symptoms that people suffer from, um, they can range from depression is a huge one. They get sleep abnormalities, emotional problems and sensory abnormalities, and actually these are the ones that can obviously be really distressing for patients and that i think is quite a big misconception also again one of the things that leads to misdiagnosis potentially because people are just waiting for the motor symptoms because that's what everyone thinks Um, but a couple of other things that there's not so much scientific i don't understand the scientific basis for these but these are really interesting so it does affect men more than women only slightly they have seen a reduced risk of Parkinson's in people that drink tea or coffee. So if That's you like caffeine, yeah, so most PhD students <laughs> are drinking coffee all the time.
0: Yeah, you're all safe.
1: Exactly. And something else which is really interesting, there's a decreased risk in people who smoke. Decreased. A decreased risk in developing Parkinson's of people that smoke, yeah. I am obviously not going to go on air and say that I'm going to tell people to take up smoking. <laughs> I'm not going to encourage it. Yeah,
0: it's a big disclaimer. Don't go out and smoke to try and prevent Parkinson's.
1: Exactly, because it increases the risk of many more things than it decreases the risk of. But there is a, a link, yeah. So that is another, it's kind of an odd fact, but, but don't do it, yeah. <laughs>
0: Does it happen to you where people sometimes figure out that you're studying Parkinson's disease and then start asking you for medical advice?
1: I think I've definitely struggled with that a lot, being a biochemist, because not many people, I think, really understand what it is we do. Um, And obviously, you know, biochemistry is a huge field and covers a whole load of things. And obviously, also working on a disease, a lot of people think I work in a more clinical setting, or I work with patients, or I work more more on that side of things so obviously ask you
0: to take a look at their rash
1: yeah exactly i have been the family scientist slash doctor for most of my life um because supposedly when you do a degree in biochemistry you obviously understand all things ever to do with biology so people do think that i work more in the probably more in a clinical setting than what i actually do because when i tell people what i do obviously i mostly go with the parkinson's angle because it's something people have heard of rather than I'm a biochemist.
0: So for anyone who wants to know more about biochemistry or Parkinson's disease, are there good places to find out more like websites?
1: There's really good online resources actually. And like the Michael J. Fox Foundation is actually a really good resource for just the general public. And there is lots of like still in-depth science that you can get from that place as well, as well as just sort of general information. There's some really interesting documentaries. So actually from a Scotland perspective, there was, um, there's a fantastic lady called Joy Milne, who is Scottish and who is the the lady that can smell Parkinson's. This is kind of a story, this is, yeah, this is an entire other podcast that you should do on this. Um, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting her um, at a couple of conferences and there is a BBC Scotland documentary it's available on youtube it's only about half an hour and it's about her life and her husband who unfortunately suffered from parkinson's and how she discovered this amazing ability and kind of now how she's involved in the research community and works with you know works with scientists and does incredible research into this so from a diagnostic perspective obviously that's it's extremely interesting so there's a lot of stories out there um
0: I know you've said it's a topic for another podcast really but how is it possible to smell Parkinson's?
1: So I think it's called hyperosmia but I think I'm going to be called up on that because I'm not a not a medical doctor here but um, she um, is a what they call a super smeller so there are people who have the ability to smell better than other humans whether it's because they have more olfactory bulbs and things like that we're not entirely sure but she realized with her husband that He had a particular smell um, that she could smell on him and uh, he unfortunately was diagnosed with Parkinson's and she never thought much of it. She then went to a Parkinson's conference, kind of a talk, you know, to learn more about his condition and sat in a room with then lots of Parkinson's disease sufferers and realised that she could smell on them the same thing that she could smell on her husband. And she, well, I guess you wouldn't you know, it's not necessarily your instant conclusion, but you then think, hang on, this is something I recognize and realized it was the people that were suffering from Parkinson's all had this particular smell. So she approached one of the scientists and kind of a relationship went from there and they've done huge amounts of work into what it is that she can smell um, in people that suffer from this condition um, because she's extremely accurate. And they're trying to work out, obviously, what molecules and things that she can detect in order to try and then develop a diagnostic test.
0: So it really underlines the fact that there must be ways to diagnose Parkinson's early.
1: Absolutely. Um, So a lot of diseases have relations to the gut microbiome, which, again, is something that people probably heard of because it's always thrown about in the media and also we we always secrete things in our sweat and in glands anyway but just because we as humans can't smell those things it doesn't mean that they aren't there so any kind of disease that you have will change kind of the profile of molecules that you maybe secrete and those things obviously are subtle and you know you and I would never notice that but their joy and people like joy and um other Animals that have much more sensitive senses of smell than humans do, they can smell those changes in those molecules
0: yeah now I've started to ask some people who come on the show this question, If you could study a different field of science, maybe related, maybe not, what would it be?
1: yeah, so not related to this <laughs> because um I mean from me, my perspective i'll probably i'd like to think I would always stay in in this field because I do really enjoy it, I really really enjoy it but one of the scientific fields I've always really loved actually is like marine science and marine biology, um, which is completely different from what I do. Um, But I did a lot of scuba diving when I was younger and I really loved marine biology. And I think my favourite fact, which is a completely unrelated fact, um, my favourite animal is the manatee. So also known as sea cows and they are these like sweet, gentle, little chunky things. And I think my favourite random fact about them is that they have been linked to the mermaid folklore. Obviously, we don't know where the kind of the legends came from, but they think that when sailors saw what they thought were mermaids, you know, lounging on rocks, it was manatees instead. And it's one of my favourite facts because manatees are very chunky and they don't look like mermaids at all, but they are very cute. And I think it's just it's just a great random fact. So I try and keep up with kind of marine science and investments in you know ocean conservation and those sorts of things as well as my own research.
0: I'm surprised if they don't look anything like uh, women with fins then (laughs) it doesn't make sense but maybe a lot of drinking.
1: Their tails their tails do look a bit like um I guess the the tails do look a bit like mermaid fins but when you exactly if you've been at sea for months and months on end who knows.
0: They're just they're just hoping that's all it is really. (laughs) So thanks for coming on to do the episode. It's been really great to talk to you about Parkinson's, your work and other areas. And as my last question, how long do you think it'll take to actually have a functioning diagnostic test?
1: Actually, I think it's progressing quite rapidly, um, which is nice to see. Um, Obviously, there's There's still so much to be done. There's so much to be done um, at the moment, understanding the basic science and then applying that in a helpful kind of translational clinical way. But there is a lot of focus at the moment on trying to develop a biomarker or at least to find something that would help us with this, which is great. And there's some really fantastic technology um, being developed that allows us to image um, alpha-synuclein protein in the cerebral spinal fluid of patients. And there's some great advances in that kind of technology. And we're seeing, you know, more things than we ever were being able to ever find before. So it's kind of going to be a combination of the technology development and kind of the basic science understanding. So I do think that, I mean, in terms of actually a reliable biomarker and it being commercially available, those things always take time. But in terms of the actual science, it's going, it is progressing quite rapidly. And it is great to see that so many people are engaging in the research. and there is involvement and there is interest which is really good so i think it is going in a good way at the moment unfortunately it's still a progressive disease and we don't know what we can do about that but the earlier we find it the earlier we can put in all of the things that we can do in place and give these people the best chance that they have
0: absolutely well that's the end of this podcast episode and thanks again for speaking on the show
1: thank you for having me it's great fun to talk about
0: if you want to learn any more about the topics that Kiani was discussing, there are some links in the podcast description or on our website, scifeed.co.uk. Each Tuesday, we'll be releasing a new episode with a different scientist and topic. And if you want to follow us, just search for a Scifeed Podcast in Facebook or Twitter, or subscribe to us using your preferred podcast provider.